Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the text. I'll be reading beginning in chapter 10 of Matthew, starting at verse 16, going back just a little bit over the course of those verses and picking back up its context now down through verse 23. Matthew 10, beginning at verse 16 through verse 23. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given to you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and father the child, and children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when ye, they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone through all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. Our gracious Father, now open our ears and our hearts to this message that was intended not only for these 12 men, but for all of the church and now specifically to heritage and to the members and people here. And we pray that the Spirit of God would now breathe into our hearts with the flame of the gospel and the high cost of discipleship that Christ warned us, that we might persevere to the end in every trial and Hear the counsel of our Lord coming back to us very clearly when we stand for our faith, whether it be in the little trials or in the life-threatening and big ones. Lord, we pray we would be faithful. And so take this message and empower it with the Spirit so that he will bring it back and bring forth fruit in our lives from it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> we are... As mentioned in an extensive section where Jesus is instructing his disciples on the inevitable persecutions that they can expect as being followers of Jesus. Now, you have to understand this was pretty early on in the disciples' ministry. And the things that he's telling them here are actually quite shocking to them. And I would say that we need to open up our hearts to this truth because these things sound quite shocking to us because we are in some ways foreign uh, to the kinds of things that are being spoken of here. But persecution of Christians is commonplace in this world. Even though we've been insulated to some degree from the kinds of persecutions the church has by and large been somewhat used to through the last 2,000 years. It has been reported and said that for the last century, in the 20th century, there have been more Christians that have been persecuted and died for their faith than all of the previous years combined. And yet these things to our ears seem somewhat strange, a little bit foreign. We get a little complacent. I think there's a little apathy in our spirit 
thinking that it's a shame for them, we'll pray for them, but it can never come home here. And folks, I'm commending you this day to take heed for your sake and your children's sake and for your grandchildren that these things will come to pass in some parts of our lives or posterity. Uh, we have to be ready to stand. Today we read of persecutions in China. We're very tuned in to some of the happenings there. And I keep telling you that these are just a symbol, if you will. They're really happening, but let them just be a symbol because we're reading of just a few of the many tens of thousands and millions of Christians today being persecuted simply because they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. About 100 years ago in China, the same country that we have been following the news on, but about 100 years ago, uh, there was what was known as the Boxer Rebellion in China. It was an anti-Christian uprising where 136 Protestant missionaries and 53 of their children were killed. It was where tens of thousands of Chinese Christians were killed, tens of thousands in a very short amount of time. A journalist and historical writer, Nat Brandt, has called the massacre of Christians then and about the Boxer Rebellion the greatest single tragedy in the history of the Christian evangelism, evangelicalism, when he wrote that, that is. In Korea, about 100 years ago, there were thousands of Christians that were tortured and killed, and it is estimated that today, today, there are between 50 and 70,000 Christians in prison and labor camps in North Korea simply because of their faith. In Russia, under the Marxist-Lenin regime and the communism and Stalin days, those policies suppressed Christianity and promoted atheism. During the time, during that time, there are estimates that over 20 million Christians died in Soviet prison camps. This is all within the last hundred years, or which is going on even today. In the Congo Rebellion between 1960 and 1964, there were persecutions there that Christians died. There are Christians that are being persecuted today in India, in Pakistan, in the Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq, in the entire Arabian Peninsula. We prayed for our brothers and sisters that we know by name, people that have been in this pulpit that are today over in Myanmar, where the Buddhist radical militant are those that have driven out the Muslims and are now turning to kill Christians. It's dangerous territory just to speak and proclaim the name of Christ. This instruction before us in Matthew chapter 10 is not merely for the 12 disciples, but it is counsel for all of his people through those dark times like these. Jesus is looking even into the future and their future as he's giving these things, setting up their expectations 
of what will happen, and he gives them counsel to prepare them for when those days come. Here we sit today having somewhat of an insulation uh, from these kinds of harsh, oppressive persecution, and it seems foreign to us, but we have to understand that these things are commonplace. We are somewhat of an exception. But this passage is not only to prepare us for if those times come upon us, it is to prepare us even to have courage in the easy things of the Christian life. Perhaps you may never be in prison for your faith or spill a drop of blood because you love Jesus, but you may be ridiculed or despised by real people in the world and even within the church of Jesus Christ. The instructions of Jesus given here are things that you will need for the courage in those days, in those times. Or simply the courage to step forward and give a testimony for Jesus. Or the courage to step forward to identify yourself with Christ and to bear testimony for him even through the waters of baptism. As we make our way through this passage, we're picking out the imperatives that Jesus is giving to his disciples and to us. These imperatives are instructive. And while we pay attention to his explanations and we trust in those promises that he gives to us, but to be a true disciple, we have to obey his commands. That's part of what we are to teach other people, to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. The great mission that Jesus has is the commission that he has given to us to go and make disciples to be obedient to him. And he gives commands that cannot be obeyed in our flesh But he does give us promises that we have received by faith and by the grace of God can do those things and obey him successfully. And so we have to see those promises. We have to believe those promises. And every time he gives a command, there are promises to assure us that these things can be obeyed and fulfilled. This is how God is glorified. And part of the way in which God is most glorified in our lives is how we face trial and persecution and under pressure, how we respond in his grace. This is this which gives us the greatest testimony that we are disciples of Jesus. And to be disciples, we have to be outspoken for him. We cannot be ashamed or withdrawn. We have to be outspoken for Jesus. And if you are outspoken for Jesus, you will face persecution for it. And now there's ways to go about this. And that's what Jesus was telling us in verses 16 and 17. He says, we are to be as wise as serpent and as harmless as doves. We are instructed in verse 16 to adopt approach an approach to evangelizing that is both wise and harmless. In verse 17, he also tells us to be wary, be cautious among people and what they will do 
to Christians who are outspoken. And today we consider our Lord's counsel for our, our hour of trial. The third bit of counsel we pick up here in verse 19. I'll back it up to verse 18. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. Do not worry about what you're going to say. Now, why would he say that? It's because when Christians are taken for their Christian faith and they are being persecuted, one of the things that they fear or they struggle or they stress about or they grow anxious about is when they know that they're going to face their oppressors, whether it be in the trial or the court or before a king or a magistrate or even the highest authorities in the church, whatever it is that they're suffering for their faith about. One of the questions that comes and plagues their mind is how will I answer the questions that they give to me? Knowing that if you answer a certain way, it could mean imprisonment or maybe even death or a separation in your family. You think about all those implications and you start weighing these things out ahead of time and the tendency is to worry and stress over those questions that will be asked and how will you answer and what kind of answer. And he says, don't even worry about it. Don't preconceive of those questions. Don't try to formulate answers ahead of time in those kinds of situations. He says, don't worry. It's exactly the same phrase as he gave to us back in Matthew 5, Matthew 6. Do not worry about your life or what you shall put on or, or what you shall eat. Do not worry. He's telling us not worry about the Christian life. If you have the kingdom as your priority and the righteousness of God first in your life, you don't have to worry. And he's telling us the same thing here. Don't worry for your hour of testing. You just believe the promise that he's given you in it. And you stand upon the promise. And you preach the gospel to yourself in that promise. And in that, the Spirit will work it all out. And that's where he gives a promise in verse 19b. He says, for it shall be given to you in that same hour what you shall speak. Why are you not to worry? Because then God says, I'm going to take care of this. You don't have to worry about those questions. You don't have to worry about the answers you're going to give because I'm going to take care of this. Just like he's going to take care of your food and your clothing, if you are faithful to the promise and receiving the promise, he's going to take care of it. you are going to be given what you are to say. And we're going to be given the answers that we need at the questions that are being fired at us. And Christians are to expect that things would come to mind in that very hour that they could have never conceived of and they had never thought of before, and that's going to be the exact right answer. And that's the promise. There's no need to figure things out ahead of time. Now there's an explanation behind this that he goes on in verse 20. He says, for it is not you that will be speaking, 
but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. Now there's an explanation. When you are in such a position as the disciples, every one of them were, and many throughout church history, and when you are in a position where you are pressed in your integrity, or you are tempted to lie, or you're tempted to recant from your Christian character, or deny the name of Christ, or to whatever it is, when you are in such a position, you can count in the hour of trial where Jesus is being proven in your life that the Holy Spirit will speak in that moment. You know, this is the first reference to the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us here in the New Testament. And he implies that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will be indwelling them. And he will be the one leading the words that come out of your mouth. Now, these 12 men who have been with Jesus for a short time have already heard spirits in men speaking through men. The demonic world is, they have heard the spiritual realm speaking through men. And yet now the Lord is giving them an assurance that in their time of need, something very similar to this would happen, but it would not be demonic and angels speak, it would be the Holy Spirit of God himself that would be in them, and he would give the answer for the time of need. Now, there's a mystery here that we don't quite understand, and perhaps the closest thing to this, by way of analogy, would be the inspiration of the Scriptures. Now, when the Spirit of God breathed into the prophets of old the Scriptures, and they penned it out, there was an inspiration that the Spirit of God gave so that every single word is penned exactly the way God would have it. Now, I would say by the way of analogy, this is not exactly the same. But as we look over in Luke's parallel gospel to this particular passage, there's two passages in Luke. One is in Luke 12, 12. It says, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And over in Luke 21, 15, it says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now that's part of the Spirit of God speaking through his people in the hour of trial, teaching them what they are to say at the very moment to the place where the wisdom that is given cannot be refuted. Now, you have read several of those examples throughout the Scripture in the book of Acts. We read of Peter and John early on. We've read of, of the Apostle Paul as he then appeared before the, the Roman authorities. Uh, we, we see these things coming both religiously and politically, both within the church and in front of governments. And in those times of persecution by the highest authorities, in the hour of trial, we can just bank on it right here. Do not worry. God himself is going to answer. Now, I do want to clarify before moving on that this is not the same as the inspiration of the scripture. We understand that? 
It's not to be understood as revelation. What comes to mind in the hour of trial is not revelation. It's not on that level. But it is a promise that God will give you the words to speak for his sake. And a second thing that we need to clarify here is what Jesus was promising here was not merely for the apostolic age or the time or the era where signed gifts were prevalent. What we have here is examples that have been given to us throughout church history. And you can be assured that you too will have the same power as you claim these promises. Martin Luther was one example where he was in the Diet of Worms and there he had to stand up for the sake of truth and for the sake of the gospel at the threat of his life. And he faltered for a moment, but the next day he came back and he spoke that which the Spirit gave him for the moment. And we've seen this for the past 2,000 years, that these words of Christ have come true in the lives of true believers. Persecution have come in all sorts of realms, both within all three of those jurisdictions of family and of government and of the church. It was Fox who wrote um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. He lived in the 16th century, right in the time of King Henry VIII. That's why we have so many of the prominent people that was written about during that time, because he has real eyewitnesses of those things that happened contemporaneously in his own country during the time. During the time of King Henry the time of the Tudor dynasty was very turbulent. You might recall that it was under Roman Catholic uh, dominion, if you will, in the religious realm until the time in which they broke away from that. And under King Henry VIII, then Protestantism had at least the, the atmosphere to, to thrive and survive for a time. Upon his death, then Edward came to the throne, but only for a short time, and then the heir to the throne after that was Mary. We know her as Bloody Mary. Bloody because she turned back against the Protestants and reclaiming the Roman Catholic faith for her country, but now as queen, she had the authority to be able to behead anybody at her desire. It was during the time in this Tudor dynasty that one such person, Anne Askew, was taken to the Tower of London. She's the only woman that we know of on record that has been tortured in the Tower of London in the way that she was. Anne was put on the rack, a rack that is designed to stretch the human body to the place of great anguish and under duress, hopefully get a recantation or some kind of confession that her persecutors or the torturers were trying to obtain. She was put onto the rack till her bones were literally pulled from their joints. After enduring all this, she was put to the Inquisition by a Roman Catholic priest named Christopher Dare who interrogated her. And one of the questions that he asked her in this process, he said, do you believe the sacrament 
which hung over the altar. And obviously there was a, a picture of a priest offering the bread of the sacrament there that he was referring to. Do you believe the sacrament was in fact the body of Christ? And simply responded with a question. Why was Stephen stoned? And what she was getting at when she said that was she was referring to that part when Stephen said, I see heaven opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. Not there was the implication. Dare responded, I cannot tell why Stephen was stoned, to which Anne replied, well then, no more will I answer your vain question. That was boldness, being racked with pain and under the threat of death. She finally was handed over to the Lord Mayor of London, whose name was Martin Bow. Bo asked, foolish woman, do you not say that the priest cannot make the body of Christ? Her response was, I say so, my Lord, for I read that God made man, but that man can make God I have never yet read or suppose ever shall read in the Bible. She was later burned at the stake, but she could not even walk out to the place where she would be burned so she was carried in her chair to the place where she was lit on fire and died a horrible death for the sake of Christ. Story after story after story of these abound. And we do well to learn of their lives, of their testimony, hearing the boldness of the Holy Spirit who spoke through them in their hour of trial so that we would not be so insulated and so easily frightened away when our time comes. Polycarp, in the time of the apostles, he pastored the church of Smyrna. We know this church because it was one of the letters written in the book of Revelation, and he pastored there. And about not long after uh, this was written, he, in about 155 A.D., was taken before the Roman authorities and demanded him to call Caesar Lord. In those days, um, the Romans believed that Caesar was some form of deity. They placed themselves into that uh, type of, of escalated um, app appellation. And yet he threatened him as he was standing there before this Roman governor, and he said that he would not, and he threatened to give me over to the wild beast. If you refuse to call Caesar Lord, I will throw you to them, in which Polycarp said, well, send for them. The council was outraged and said, if you despise my beast, I will send you to the fire. But if you will swear to Caesar, I will release you. Now curse Christ. Polycarp said, 80 and six years I have served Christ and he has done me no harm. Should I therefore blaspheme my king who is my savior 
you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and is unquenched. But you do not know the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Go ahead and bring what you will. Now, how do we explain that kind of boldness in those times where their lives are not only threatened, but death is imminent and certain? And that's what the Lord is here promising to his 12 disciples and to Polycarp and to all of those. He's promising them to you. And then the Lord spoke here in the next verse in Matthew 10 of one of the most painful kinds of betrayal we could ever know. And he says in verse 21, Now brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. What could be more painful than your child not only opposing you, not only disagreeing with you, not only has gone after another faith or turn to atheism, but literally now takes you and exposes you in order for you to be persecuted by the hands of the enemy. Every one of these men that Jesus was speaking to had families. Jesus had a family. He had a mom and earthly father. He had brothers. He had siblings. These men did too. And how difficult is it to conceive of the breakdown of family relationships more than a father with his child, more than with siblings that are so close to each other, that over the name of Christ there would be great dissension and then a turning over with great hatred. And yet it's hard to conceive of this Jesus who loved all people. He had the children come to him so he could bless them. He was kind. He healed people wherever he went. He spoke the truth. Not a lie was found in his lips. Not a malicious spirit ever was prevalent with him. He was gentle. He was strong. Children loved him. People loved him. He promised eternal life. He healed their diseases. He cast out the demons. And yet he was hated. Hated. More than any other person who ever walked the face of the earth. And, and there's no explanation for that anywhere except when the Bible explains that there is a warfare between God and the spirits that hate him. And the Lord gave counsel what's going to happen because the Lord knew this, but the disciples had not known this. And he's telling you and he's telling us and he's telling them that this great warfare is happening. And you may come into a proximity of the battle where you may be a battleground for the spiritual warfare that is going on already behind the scenes, but it may be pressed upon you. It may be the Lord's purpose for you. Job, in a single person, without knowing the reason why, 
God was the one who chose Job, mentioned him to Satan for the purpose that only God could see at the time to glorify his name in Job's faithfulness through the most horrible trial he would ever experience. And God gave him the grace. But Job was a battleground. The battle was going on in the spiritual realm. The war was going on up there, but he was the battleground. And the Lord tells us that the endurance for the trial that we will ever face is imperative. He who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the last bit of counsel our Lord gives us from the present passage here. It's really more of a statement of fact than a command to obey. He who endures to the end. And that particular counsel is given to us in terms of a, of a condition. He that endures right through the end of this trial that he's facing, right to the very end of it, is what he's talking about. He is the one that will be saved. Who will be saved? Our allegiance to Christ right to the end is imperative if we're going to be saved. It is important for me to emphasize this point this morning to you. Some of you may never spend any time in jail or spill any blood for Christ in this way that we read about. But if you do, you must endure to the end, all the way through that trial, if you're going to yourself enjoy eternal salvation. And what he's not talking about is some kind of fortitude in yourself that saves you. Everything in the Bible actually argues against that notion, but it is apparent that Jesus' disciples will be distinguished by this perseverance. That in their critical moment, mere professors of Christianity will simply wither away. That's what the parable of the soils was about. When the parable of the soils, when some of the seed was spread on the stony places, it immediately grew up and it took route and it sprouted. But Jesus explained that when the sun came up, it withered away. And he said that this, these are the ones that the word of God has lodged somewhat. And they, they actually believed for a while until the place where they were tried for their faith. And then they gave it up. These were not saved. And there are many people like that today in churches and congregations all over America. There's very likely there's some people like that here today. Well, who are they? No one knows. In some cases, they themselves don't know until they're faced with that hour of trial. But true believers will not ultimately and finally back down. They were not going to back away from Christ. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Our Lord is certain that those who have the Spirit of God will be saved 
and that they will persist because God himself will sustain them through that trial. And God will be glorified in it, but it is something that if they do not, it's a testimony against them. Now, some have faltered in this. Peter faltered, did he not? But not ultimately and not finally. There are many others who, through church history, have faltered in this, but not ultimately and not finally. You cannot ultimately and finally uh, deny Christ and be assured of salvation. It's just not. But if the Spirit of God is in you, you will persevere to the end. That's a work of the Spirit working in you. It's a testimony of Christ. The only reason that we have testimonies of those who have faltered and yet then turned and recanted and repented of their faltering, and now we read about these people. <coughs> is because they could not ultimately renounce Christ, and they stuck with it. Again, in the time of the Tudor dynasty in England, the religious winds were very turbulent between Protestantism and Catholic. <coughs> in the Corpus Christi Library in Cambridge, England, is a Bible whose owned, formerly owned by Thomas Bilney. Bilney was instrumental in leading Hugh Latimer, an English reformer that you've probably heard, to the Lord. There was a time when Bilney had succumbed to the pressure of the Roman Catholic Cardinal Wolsey to recant his Protestant teachings against the relics and other things like that, which under that duress, Bilney did. And over a year, his heart troubled him and his conscience would not let him go. He read the scriptures and he felt like the scriptures were against him. And he, he was so <clears throat> troubled by this that he finally repented and confessed his sins. And he went out publicly preaching Christ, knowing that it would be persecution and death for him. <clears throat> he did get arrested. And he went through trial, <clears throat> and he was sentenced to death at the flame. And on the evening before he was to be burned to death, he was allowed to have some friends to come visit with him. And he was eating a hearty meal that evening, and his friends were delighted to see his courage and his strength and his lighthearted temperament for the day. And the time when he began to speak with his friends... He was talking with them, and the flame of a candle was there on the table. And he began telling his friends who were there of his faith and his recantation and his repentance and, and what a joy it was to have his conscience relieved and to be able to even go and suffer for the cause of Christ. As he's talking with his friends, he then took his finger <clears throat> and he put it in the flame of the fire that burned on the table to the protest of his friends, and he kept it there. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, well, the scripture tells me that when I walk through the fire, the Lord will be with me and sustain me, and I'm testing that. 
to the extent that he burned off the tip of his finger to the first joint. The Bible, there preserved in the Parker Library of Corpus Christi in Cambridge, England, that I'm hoping to lay my eyes upon in October. I am told by a pastor friend of mine there in Isaiah 43 of that Latin large Bible of his. He had notes in the margin. And when he came to a very important note, he literally would draw a hand with a finger pointing at it. And right there out beside Isaiah 43 verse 2 was this hand pointing with the verse underlined, when I walk through the fire, I will be with you. The next morning as he went to the flames, he claimed the promises of God all through it and endured the trial and died for the Lord with a clean conscience. And he persevered to the end. Well, you might remember that English reformer Latimer over in Oxford, <clears throat> about an hour and a half away due to the west of, of Cambridge. You know the story where Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake and one that I won't go back over again, but there was one who was watching that day and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer. He was one that was in the kind of the reforming process and he came out very strongly against the Roman Catholic doctrine and transubstantiation, which in that day almost became a litmus test in terms of your orthodoxy. They made Cranmer look on the burning of Ridley and Latimer. And finally, under great duress, Cranmer wrote a recantation of his views, of the Protestant views. They put it before him and asked him to sign, do you recant these things? And he wrote that he does. And it bothered him. Oh, did it bother him. It was finally when he was brought to the place where he was going to read that recantation publicly. No one knew how much it tortured him in his spirit, but he took out a parchment that he had prepared, and rather than reading his recantation, he recited and renounced all of that recantation. He renounced the Pope as the Antichrist in all of his doctrine. He related what a great injustice he did to his Savior when he signed that recantation. And he said, as far as this hand, which has betrayed my heart, it shall be burned first. And the whole place went up in an uprise and they rushed him out. But he went to the place where he was to be burned. And as he was chained there, he stuck his hand into the flame first and literally burned the hand that betrayed him. And it could be heard out of the flames of his saying, this unworthy hand, this unworthy hand. Those who looked on said he never moved in the fire. He was as immobile, immobile as the post. People, God has promised to be with us through the hour of trial. Story after story after story. Millions of your brethren today, millions 
are suffering because they claim Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, as their Lord. You are here today in liberty. Do not take that for granted. And yet you go out into the marketplace and we, we are just a little afraid of what people are going to think of us if we boldly proclaim Christ. If we stand strong for him, if we are outspoken, and we have great liberty to do that here. About the worst thing that's going to happen to us for doing that is going to have some mockery and people make fun of us. Perhaps they may fine us, but that's about the worst we're going to get in our communities. And yet we have a mission that Christ says you will suffer persecution. But don't worry. Just like you're not to worry about your finances if you keep the kingdom of God. First, don't worry. I've got these things taken care of. They're for a purpose. You cannot be ashamed of the gospel. Now, if you, you're here and you've been unwilling or out of shame or embarrassment or fear to follow the Lord's command that you identify yourself with being baptized, you need to believe that the Lord is going to be with you and he's going to be faithful. If you're here and you've been wanting to witness to a loved one and you're just worried how they're going to respond or how they're going to take it, you've got to Remember that the Lord has said, don't be fearful. I'm going to be with you. We are to speak out for Christ. That's part of our mission. And we will endure hardship for it. There will be embarrassments. There will be things that we fear and our, our self-image or, or whatever it is. Just you know, That's why you have to deny yourself daily and pick up your cross and follow me if you're going to be counted worthy to be his disciple. Now, is what you have in you, going to be that which perseveres to the end. Be willing to be persecuted, even by your friends and your family and your mother and your father and your son, your child, your sibling. Be willing to be betrayed in the most horrible betrayal. And that's why Jesus says, if you do not love me more than you love your, your family, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Folks, discipleship is a call. And yet discipleship is something that God, by his grace, gives to us. It cannot be fulfilled in the flesh. You cannot rise up in fortitude. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But if the Spirit of God is working in you, which he does, then this is true of you. And you will persevere to the end. This is part of your Christian calling. And you can be assured that God is with you, even through the fires of trial, even when those fires become very real. Let's pray. Our Father, these things <clears throat> are real because you've declared them to be so. And there is testimony and witness of real live people that have gone before us that have borne witness to these things and found them to be true. And they are now part of the great cloud of witnesses cheering us on to be faithful and lay aside any besetting sin and to run the race without being disqualified 
and to run it well and to fight the fight and to finish the course. And Lord, we follow in their train, being faithful and trusting the faithfulness of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us and through us to do of your will and do of your good pleasure and that you would be pleased through the hour of trial and how we respond. May these words come back to comfort us, assure us, and to give us the faith to believe these things to be true. We thank you for those who have proved them, not only to themselves but to us, <clears throat> that we can so know that you will also be true to us. And Lord, we pray that you would use this to give us greater courage and boldness in the gospel, a boldness that we ourselves cannot uh, conjure up, but only comes from your spirit. So if there's anything in our lives that is quenching the spirit or grieving him that would keep him from this kind of boldness, we pray that you would expose it and pray that you would show it to us that we may repent and, and throw off that idolatry and that the Spirit of God has full course in our lives to work powerfully in us and through us. Lord, use us in a mighty way. Use our children, our grandchildren. And may we be faithful for the cause and the sake of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.